Ready when you guys are. Oh, is my vape too loud? I feel like that's that's always like kind of a side sound effect when I have you on. <laughs> okay. Not a big deal. Right. If you didn't do it, maybe I might download the sound effect and put it in. Okay, zing. <laughs> and now it's time to sit back and enjoy the two true freaks internet radio broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro, and over there, figuratively next to me, is Dr. Bill Robinson. Huh? What? Who? Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Figuratively, not literally, although now people use literally to mean figuratively. Well, maybe I'm metaphorically over here. Ooh, my metaphorical left. Very impressive. And uh, on for the first time with us, and I'll say no more than that and be cryptic, is Trentus Magnus, our friend who has not done Back to the Bins with us ever before. Hey, hey, hey. How's it going, buddy? <laughs> That's all right. It's all right. Thanks for having me on. You know, it's kind of funny. Uh, back to the bins. I don't think I've ever told you this before, but this was kind of like my first love when it came to podcasting. Like, you know, golly, I, I want to do something that's kind of like that. And so if you actually listen to m- my erstwhile podcast, Trenis Magnus Punches Reality, I, especially at first, didn't try to hide too much of the fact that it was basically a Back to the Bins ripoff. So, uh, yeah, um, I'm fessing up to that now, public acknowledgement. <laughs> so uh, that's how influential this podcast has been. Well, I, I think your your uh, love of the podcast predates Bill and I coming on it, though. So I'm not uh-huh. going to I'm not going to pat myself on the back too much. No, well, no, but you guys have carried on the tradition um, because. You think about how many times this podcast has changed hands. It's been like the baton at the Olympics or something. You guys have kind of improved on a lot of different things. And considering how high the quality level was to begin with, that's really saying something. So you guys need to pat yourselves on the back if you ask me. I'm going to accept it in a gracious manner and not get my head too big to leave the room. How about you, Dr. Bill? How do you feel about that kind of compliment? Oh, sorry, I was letting your head get out of the way first, because I couldn't get to my microphone. <laughs> so uh, we'll, we'll leave all of that stuff uh, behind us now. And so the way this episode developed is Trentus and I were talking about having him on here, and he suggested three possible books uh, and said, you know, which of the three would you rather I cover? And rather than 
pick one of them and tell him to cover it. What we did was we had him pick one that he wanted to cover, and Bill and I are covering the other two. So this is <laughs> this is a totally Trentus Magnus picked episode. In so many ways, actually, because I didn't want to tell you guys this. I wanted to save this for when we're actually recording. This is kind of a sequel to my to my podcast because all of these books were things that I was planning to cover on my own. So anyway, <laughs> that works out well, then. Good deal. So we're going to go in traditional order because you did manage to do it a Marvel, a DC and a uh, an indie. And the Marvel is your book. So as the guest, I do always give the option. Normally we do the Marvel first, but if you don't want to go first, that's that's fine because you are the guest. Um, actually, in this case, I think going first would be the most convenient because my iPad chose this moment to start giving me fits. And The Amazing Spider-Man number 301 is the only thing I've got up and ready to go. So, um, yeah, that actually kind of works. Uh, all right. So do you want to do the intro for this or shall, shall I? Oh, no, you it's, it's all yours. All righty. All righty. So this is uh, The Amazing Spider-Man number 301, or if this works better for you. Part one of our two-part Todd McFarlane sort of tie-in thing that we're doing here. I, uh, all evidence to the contrary, I didn't actually plan it this way. These were just the first three comics I could think of. And as it turns out, two of them were drawn by Todd McFarlane. And I'm not sure if you guys can hear a shouting baby in my background, but that's that's what that is. Party never well, stops here. Two, so. two are Todd McFarlane and one couldn't be less Todd McFarlane. Although, couldn't she, though? The crybaby element? Okay. All right. Uh, that's a cheap shot. All right. So, yeah, but yeah, this is uh, Amazing Spider-Man. I was, we were in totally different wavelengths there, and it took me a minute to get what you were saying, but I am amused now. Yeah, hey. <laughs> as long as we get there in the end, right? So, uh, yeah, Amazing Spider-Man number 301, release date, February the 9th, 1988. Cover date, June 1988, so not a gap there at all. Writer is David Michelini. Penciler is the aforementioned Todd McFarlane. Inker is Bob McCloud. Wow. I guess I didn't realize that Bob McCloud was even an inker, but uh, okay. So back to the bin, sending me to the school, sending me to school once again. All right. Yeah. Colorist, go ahead. McCloud, didn't he ink? Uh, it's on the Marvel Star Wars, or did he do the pencil? I don't know. I'll look that no, up. No, he, he is not listed as the anchor on the uh, credits on, on the first page. It just lists Todd McFarlane as artist. Okay, well, I mean, bear in mind, this is coming from fandom.com, so the information here may not necessarily be 100%. Um, may not be, but usually, you know, they don't usually pull creators names out of a clear blue sky so there's probably some basis in fact for that comment you know for that listing fair enough and as to if it helps i mean look my familiarity with bob mcleod basically it goes back to i believe the new mutants i think is Mm. one of his credits that's what i was going to mention also that's where that's the first thing that came to mind for me well, right, but I mean, I'm a DC guy, so the, actually the first thing for me was um, his run, his very underappreciated run, I should say, on Action Comics, uh, I would say circa 1989 through like maybe the beginning of 1991, midway 1991, something like that. 
Um, very underrated. I seem to there just doesn't seem to be very many people out there that are Bob McCloud Superman fanboys, but I do kind of consider myself to be one of them. Which uh, anyway, I at least wanted to throw all that out there. I'm kind of I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm a Marvel <laughs> retard, but I'm. It's like at the same time. I mean, I just wouldn't. I, I would never claim to have that same level of expertise when it comes to basically anything to do with the Marvel universe. So um, anyway, so Bob McCloud is apparently he, he moonlights as an inker. So uh, I'm just going to file that away under things I didn't know and to continue through the credits. Colorist is Gregory Wright. Letterer is Rick Parker. Editor is Jim Salakrup. And by the way, I actually had the pleasure of meeting Jim Salakrup at a con. Not sure if you guys want to get into that right now or save that for later or maybe Up just not you. talk. Do what? Up to you. Ah, we'll save it for later. Uh, we've got a lot to go through here. So, um, but anyway, <clears throat> uh, let's see. What is the, oh yeah, this is, uh, this, this story is entitled The Sable Gauntlet. And I've got a little bit of a, I, I've actually got two synopses here. One of them is kind of long. The other one is kind of short. The solicit synopses because, or synopsis, because this is, this website is apparently a little bit more detailed than even I first realized. Solicit synopsis is as follows. Supposedly, Franz Krauss, try saying that out loud three times fast, hired Silver Sable to test a security system. But when Krauss turns out to be a neo-Nazi, Spider-Man smells a rat. So Franz Kraut? Franz Krauss was a kraut? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, was he I've, sour? <laughs> well, see, the thing was, I didn't actually want to make that joke, so now I feel so much better that you made it for me. So thank That's you, Bill. <laughs> That's why we keep Bill around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, uh, as a sort of a longer synopsis uh, for this, though, uh, basically goes that Silver Sable and her wild pack have been hired to test out the security system in a new building, uh, hired or constructed by Jason Pruitt. Uh, basically, the really, though, the, the, the main lead on recruiting the Wild Pack and ultimately Silver Sable herself is Frank Cruz, otherwise known as Franz Cruz, or, or Franz Krauss, I should say. Uh, he's the one that's really pushing for Silver Sable to take the lead in testing the security system, which by itself, that really should have been a tip-off that maybe this guy's not on the up and up, but Silver Sable needs the money, so she agrees to do it. Meanwhile, Spider-Man Spidey Sense registers Cruz as a threat, but he says, ah, Silver Sable's got this, nothing to worry about. Well, come to find out there is something to worry about. So Spider-Man has to swing into action, save Silver Sable, uh, overcome the building security, and in the process, at least try to apprehend Franz Krauss. And I can't speak for any of the rest of you, but there are certain comic uh, comic book sort of subplots that will just pop up on like a recurring basis. And I, I maybe I'm the only one that fe that feels this way, but it, when I was reading, uh, Spider-Man, not so much in this era, but reading these issues as back issues and then getting caught up to what was the current run at that time. I'm not kidding, guys. Every single time the Silver Sable uh, element, this whole subplot stuff with 
the Wild Pack or Silver Sable, anything to do with silver, really. Every time this came up, it's like, God, I just hate this so much. I hope she's not in this. Oh, crap. Here we go. You know, and honestly, for as annoying as I normally find silver to be, this issue is actually really enjoyable. I kind of want to open up the floor to this. Like, am I the only one that, that ever felt that way about silver or is this or, or, or am I all alone here? And I guess for that matter, did you guys enjoy this issue too? Because I actually got more out of this than I was expecting. I this this came in an era when I was not reading. It was shortly after this. Oh no, actually by this time I was reading books, but I was not getting Spider Man, I think, at this time. No, excuse me, I'm gonna correct that one more time. Nineteen eighty eight, I was this did come when I was not collecting. I was this was during the era when I realized I was too old to collect comics anymore. Uh, and then I got older and realized, no, nah, I could still collect comics. Uh, so I was not reading this when it came out. So the introduction of the character of Silver Sable was kind of all just, you know, new to me. Uh, and I found her character to be kind of bland in a way. Mm-hmm. So I, have, I haven't really had any particular leanings towards books that she's been, excuse me, books that she's been in. Uh, but I found this to be, I found this to be entertaining. Uh, I mean, it could have been a little bit more meaty than it is, but it was, it wasn't bad. I think, you know, I'll combine the the story itself, which I thought was okay, with the artwork, which it feels to me like this is before McFarlane really went nuts, because there was a point when he just, you know, was given total free reign to do what he wanted, and his his artwork I thought suffered for it. Yeah. Uh, in here, I feel like he's, you know, he's a little bit more restrained and, and that works to his benefit or works to the book's benefit. So I've overall, I kind of found it to be a fairly enjoyable read, you know, as much as you can when you're reading books with neo-Nazis in them. <laughs> yeah. And my, my answer for that was actually going to be, it seems to me that McFarlane was a little bit more into his burn phase. And then there would come a point when he kind of adopted this, it, it was a little bit more like, this Gene Colan meets Frank Miller type of approach. And he did that when he got his own adjectiveless Spider-Man mm-hmm. book. And then God knows when he got into Spawn, uh, mm-hmm. you're, you're hard pressed to miss the, the Gene Colan influence there. But, uh, but here, especially this just seems more John Byrne ish to me. And mm-hmm. it, it doesn't have, cause I could see John Byrne having Spider-Man with these proportions I think even a year from now, Todd McFarlane was not drawing Spider-Man with with these types of proportions anymore. He was a lot lankier. He was more like bug-like, and he had those just weird poses that he would do when he's in costume as Spider-Man. But here, you just you don't really see that quite as much. And um, my main takeaway for the art is it, it was actually going to come down to the fact that there was a lot more evolution in Todd McFarlane's style than I ever realized. And again, it, it, it's sort of coincidental what else we're going to be talking about here. You can really see the contrast in this art as compared to the other art that we're going to be talking about shortly. Yeah. Cause um, once you mentioned burn, I can kind of see that because before I was going to say, it looks like he's more constrained by the, like, like the house style here. We, 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 we don't see 
I mean, what we'll see when he gets into Spider-Man later, because I was buying those when they were coming out on the stand, and then what we're going to cover at the end of the show are, yeah, that's a that's a steady progression in a direction. Some people may like it, some people may not, but it is. But you can see some of it developing here, but it's still early. Yeah, well, he's, he was already doing the crazy webs to a degree, not, not as crazy as they would get later. Uh, but again, I still feel it's it's a more restrained look, and I and I and I kind of can appreciate your thought that it's you know heavily burn influenced. And I would think in this particular era, burn probably had more to do with you know what you, you could put in quotations, whatever the house style was of this time. Uh, you know, and, and at this point, they did allow the artists to have a little bit more of their own style. So it wasn't totally a house style anyway, like it had been in the, you know, the late 60s, the early 70s. You know, over time, it you know, they allowed the the more well-known artists to kind of go on their own. Uh, we've we've said similar things with John Romita Jr. I was where, just going to say that when when he was when he did uh, Iron Man 150, how, how that was that compared to where he is now is night and day and you can see he was constrained by the house style but that was a book from the eight, early 80s earlier in the 80s certainly i'm not sure exactly yeah. when but I, I think both john Romita jr and uh, todd mcfarlane benefited from that constraint and i think both you know both are still really good artists i don't want to you know make this a bashing session uh but i do think that both when left to their own devices have not necessarily improved upon what they did earlier i don't think ramita jr is as good as he was in the 80s and 90s of course he's older but but i think his i don't know i don't a lot of his new stuff i i don't feel i don't feel the detail or, or it's just not the same for me now, I know, and, and, you know, we're going far afield talking about Ramita Jr., but I know that I uh, I read an interview with him around the time of uh, One More Day. And he was talking then about having, uh, you know, having to try and pump out work more quickly than he'd like mm. and, and not giving it the, the same attention that he would have otherwise. And I don't know if that's a fact to like everything he's done but in my mind i'm always reliving that interview uh when i uh you know when i look at his work you know it, it certainly is more recent work uh and by more recent i would say you know in the last whatever 10 years uh than what i thought of you know like you say in the early 80s well i actually i probably when i said 10 years i could probably make that 25 years but whatever, at whatever point he became much more stylized and to, to go with that, with the Todd McFarlane talk, uh, we covered a while back, uh, the adjectiveless issue number one. Oh boy. Uh, and, you know, left to his own devices without some sort of constraint. Uh, I don't think his work was nearly as good. Now this, this, I, you know, I enjoy the art in this book. It's not, you know, it's a little cartoony in points, but not to the point where it's a detriment at all. I, I really don't have any problem with it. I think it's it's a you know it's a it's a good quality, uh, enjoyable read. Well, um, in terms of the Rome, the John Romita Jr. thing, I always kind of thought 
he was kind of going on a straight line. You know, he had Amazing Spider-Man and then he had Iron Man. I want to say that he did X-Men next. Yeah, he did the Uncanny X-Men. Yeah, and then I think there may have been um, one or two or three things. And then at some point he he dove headfirst into Frank Miller's Daredevil, Man Without Fear. And from that point forward, he just became just a different artist, in my opinion. Yeah, and that's what he was doing. Typhoid Mary and Mephisto and all in uh, Daredevil. And it, yeah, his I, yeah, his I, I feel that is where his art changed, because I remember back when he was doing the X-Men, one of the most memorable scenes that first pops to my head with him is the bar fight between Colossus and the Juggernaut. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a memorable enough one that they actually did an episode of the cartoon recreating it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was yeah, I, I remember that, and yeah, that that was good stuff. And then from from that point forward, it was like his style sort of darkened to a point where he really can't, or at least shouldn't, do stuff that's not Daredevil or The Punisher or even Moon Knight. You could say, you know, that's a little more arguable. But well, wasn't point, he recently on Superman? I think he was. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and I and I can't really I don't really see that to be honest with you. See, I, well, I and like that's like, the thing, like '80s John Romita Jr. I would argue that, like him being on that. Oh, I would I would pay good money for that. But yeah, this new school stuff, and I know that artists hate it. They hate it whenever you say that to them. You know, your old stuff was so much better. But it's like, dude, <laughs> when you had something that worked, and then you came you you come along now and you screw it up. I mean, I'm sorry, dude. Emperor's got no clothes. You know, I mean. <laughs> And, 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 you know, the fact is, if he's if what he's drawing is something like kick ass, I actually think his art style is perfect. For, it's perfect for that. But when you put J.M.D. Mateus or not J.M.D. Mateus, I'm sorry, J. Michael Straczynski and John Romita Jr. on Spider-Man, you're not you're not going to come up with something of the quality of like Lee Romita Sr. You know, <laughs> I'm not trying to be a stick in the mud here, but we can be honest here, can't we? <laughs> sure, you can. This is this is this is a forum where all opinions are respected, except the wrong ones. Right, right, right. <laughs> no, it's uh, there are no wrong opinions. There, there may be wrong ideas. There's never never wrong opinions. Fair enough. Well, I at least wanted to throw all that out there. But yeah, we are going a little bit into the weeds a bit with uh, Ramita. So sorry about that. But well, uh, just just to, to finalize my thoughts on that is it felt to me like. Uh, on Spider-Man and Iron Man, he was constrained. Then when he got to the X-Men was when they started to cut loose on the constraints a little. And he was developing his own style over that time or developing the style that we came to know as his. And when it was somewhere in the middle, when it was morphing, uh, it was still really enjoyable in a different way. But then when he went over to Daredevil, I feel, and this could be you know totally unfair, I feel that Klaus Janssen, who I think is a really good inker, but needs to be on certain artists because he does have a very distinctive style. Uh, I feel like he had a heavy influence on how Ramita Jr. was doing his books. And it didn't really translate to other things. Uh, Like you say, you know, maybe on something like Kick-Ass, it would fit really well. But, you know, when, when he was doing like, you know, when he went back to Spider-Man or 
I think he did some some time on the Avengers even and just was not what I look for at that mm-hmm. point. No. Uh, and, and again, you know, I mean, we've we've praised and criticized Klaus Janssen over the years for not necessarily for his talent in any way, but based upon how his skills mesh with the artist he works with. Uh, some of my very, very favorite was when Klaus Janssen inked Sal Buscema on The Defenders. I, I just thought it was absolutely gorgeous. Really? Uh, yeah, I would I would recommend you check it out. It's, I believe it's issues in the teens of The Defenders. Uh, oh. I would say check it out. Uh, but, you know, again, his 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 artwork depends on who who he's working with in many ways. Well, the you know, I, I couldn't agree more. There are certain artists that the minute I see their their names, I'm really not trying to be a jerk, but I mean it really does come to be kind of a kind of a deal breaker. And there was a limited series where I want to say it was called Daredevil: The End or The End of Days. It basically set out to tell basic something like the canonical death of matt murdoch right Mm -hmm. and it's written by brian michael bendis and alex maleev is going to have something to do with that like covers or something i think and i just thought okay i cannot wait to read this limited series right and then the announcement comes down the pipeline drawn by klaus jansen which is strike one and it's inked by Bill Sienkiewicz, which is somehow strike two and strike three at the same time. <laughs> Go figure. And it's like, oh, dear God, say it isn't so. And, I, and so it's like on the one – I mean, look, you can love or hate the writing in that limited series, and I'm not here to criticize you on that one way or the other. But, oh, my – that it's like the unholy – it's not the trifecta, the duofecta, the bifecta, I don't know, of just, just horrible where? art. Fine, that works from that works too. It's like bad art cubed, you know. And um, oh, good, good lord. And yeah, so it, it it is absolutely. So I mean, honestly, like if you ask me, and if you think I'm wrong, I want you to I want you to say so. But there's Klaus Jansen, the inker, which is as you say, very dependent upon the penciler with whom he is working. And then there's Klaus Jansen, the penciler, and him I cannot abide. I mean, I, maybe I can do business with Klaus Jansen, the inker, because I've got those dare, those uh, Frank Miller Daredevil issues. I think they're great, but man, well, I, Klaus I think, Jansen. I, I think Klaus Jansen, the penciler, is too dependent on trying to look like Frank Miller or look like Frank Miller's artwork. And Frank Miller's artwork isn't what it once was, but I understand at least what I had heard was that that was due to, you know, some sort of physical issue that came up with him with his nerves or something. So I don't want to criticize that in any way. Okay. Well, thanks for making me feel like a jerk. No, no. You know what? There were a lot of people out there who just didn't like Frank Miller's art before all of that. And I suspect that you're one of them. Uh, And that's not, you know, but I, I, you know, again, you know, the fact that his art has in my mind, dropped a level over the years uh that may be due to uh you know whatever he whatever physical ailments he has but that doesn't mean his style is your cup of tea he is a very very stylized artist and we're going from artist to artist to artist here but frank miller is very stylized and if you don't like that style that's you know that's the death knell for those books 
Yeah, and you want to talk about an artist uh, whose style has radically changed over the over the decades. I would even say even within like the Dark Knight Returns, you read you, you just look at the first few pages of the first issue of Dark Knight Returns. Look at the last few pages and it's like it's almost hard to believe the same guy drew it in some ways. And um anyway, yeah, uh, Amazing Spider-Man 301. How about that? Yeah, you know, I I think it speaks volumes for not that this is a bad book. Again, I thought this was an enjoyable read, but I think it speaks volumes for the fact that it's a very, very light read that that we don't have quite as much to talk about what went on in the book. Well, uh, and I, and th- there is a reason for that. There is a reason for that. Um, this is number 301. Well, issues um, 298, 299, and 300, they form this weird sort of sort of trilogy with each other. You've got this extremely lame villain called Chance that Spider-Man has to oh, take yeah. out. He swings back home and Venom is making his first appearance and he's waiting for Spider-Man. And so this, I think, was meant to be kind of like a sort of like a a palate cleanser. Like you remember what? Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. And you remember when when uh, comic book publishers, they would have like these really significant storylines, which they would immediately follow up with. These kind of done-in-one, sort of easy-to-read stories that require nothing of you. That, in fact, technically may not even require that you even read them. And that was kind of standard operating procedure for DC and Marvel at the time. And so... The thing that brings to mind for me, and it's nothing to do with comics, but I'm just thinking Star Trek The Next Generation, after they finished with the best of both worlds, then they had uh, a very... uh, low-key episode called family that they followed it up with about picard going back to his brother's vineyard and all of that stuff that was a great episode yeah definitely a change of pace i love that episode. it it, it seems Mm -hmm. to to fit the mold of what you're talking about you know they had that very very intense episode and they followed it up with something you know much more uh but that was more personality driven but that was very intense too because then he let out you know, he admitted to his brother as is he was violated by the Borg and he was, you know, I don't know if you could say that. I don't I never felt that one. That I, it, it is a change well, of me, pace, but it's let me, still let me, let me change. Let me change the, the comment. And it's it's a much less action episode. Mm, oh, yes, Pure, purely yes. emotion. No action. Really. Unless you count two old men fighting in mud. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I still like that episode, though. It's awesome. <laughs> oh, no, it's it's good, but it's just a total change of pace, which I think, yeah. like I said, I think that fills what – or it, it's similar to what you're talking about. Oh, and there is actually a Marvel tradition at play here that um, this is – this was – I've got – you, you kind of hit the nail on the head when you said this is kind of like a Twinkie sort of issue. Um, very light and all that, but there is a sort of a Marvel tradition that I included in my very brief notes – about this uh, issue where hero meets hero, hero and hero fight, hero <laughs> and hero sort of have a draw. There's no clear winner. Then hero and hero team up. And I think really Marvel, I think, well, number one, they invented that. But number two, I would even go so far as they perfected that. And that's what we see here. I mean, you can kind of understand sort of why uh sable went to guns against spider-man as brief as it was 
and then you would understand why they would team up. And it, it's just, it's one of those things that I think Marvel really, they always did better than DC. If we're being honest, I think this whole, you know, hero briefly duking it out with hero DC tried it a few times or many times, but I don't think it was ever quite the success for them that it always was for Marvel. So at least wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. I remember Stan Lee appearing on uh, comic book men when they used to have that show. And he talked about, uh, you know, when hero meets hero and he was saying, even then you could never have one of them beat the other, you know, pretty much they I've seen exceptions to that rule, but you know, he was a master of it. Cause you know, you'd have somebody like silver surfer fighting daredevil and yet it would come out to a draw. (laughs) How does that happen? You know, I, although, you know, that's that's a totally made up matchup. I'm not sure that has ever happened. But it would. Uh, it would happen that way if Stan was writing. <laughs> actually, I swear in the the John Romita Jr. run, I think Silver Surfer is in some of that because Mephisto's in it. I swear I remember seeing that. I'll have to look into that, but I'm pretty positive that I don't know if he fights Daredevil, but I, I it, maybe it's one of the covers and I could be totally wrong. I could be uh, just whatever. Well, you could be right on the money. We'll find out eventually. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that is definitely a, a Marvel trope that, you, you know, you don't want one hero to be shown to be too superior to, to the other. You know, and then you'd even have situations where, you know, you like have the Avengers fighting one guy and somehow that guy manages to, to beat all of them or to hold his own against all of them. But But if you took one of the Avengers that he held his own against and made him fight, the group and put the guy who had held his own in the first place with the group and it would still be a draw. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. love that. It doesn't make sense, but I love it. <laughs> yeah. It, it just, it, it makes you feel like no matter what you read, you're going to see a, a good fight. Ultimately, you know, when, when the heroes are, are squaring off, it's never going to be the only time I can remember off the top of my head. It was shortly after civil war. They had an issue of, I think it was in Thor's book, not Iron Man's, but where Thor fought Iron Man. Uh, and and he just basically, you know, tore him apart. Oh, that was at Civil War because he says, you know, uh, and I think it was in the Thor book because he says the Stark, you know, I would have words with thee. And he peels off his off his faceplate and zaps the crap out of him with lightning. And basically he has to walk back to wherever he came from and. You know, he's kind of like, hey, where where are you going to leave me? You know, and he's like, you know, walk, bitch. Yeah, exactly. I remember that's that's exactly the story I'm talking about. And that's the only one I can think of off the top of my head where one just totally schooled the other. Well, and, and I would even I would add to that, that in that story, Iron Man kind of he kind of deserved that. You know, oh, he okay. had that coming. Absolutely. Ah, Daredevil 282. The cover has. Uh, Mephisto and his Silver Surfer on it. <laughs> so, so Silver Surfer was in the Daredevil book, and it was drawn by John Romita Jr. I was correct. Whatever the story is, I can't tell you. And that's Anne Nascenti, right? Yes. Okay, well, that explains a lot, right? Okay, all right. No, that makes sense. Um, good catch, though. I guess I'd completely forgotten about all that, but you're right. I, in fact, it doesn't. Daredevil's barely on that cover at all. I don't even. I think he's just in the f- corner. Yeah. I don't even think he's. Oh yeah, he's way down. Oh, I see him. He shrunk on a little piece of rock outcropping, and Mephisto's about ready to eat him. Yeah. 
and just just you know taking a look at that cover i do not like it at all no i i don't either i would almost go so far as like this is the gold standard of what a daredevil cover should not be (laughs) um but then i think i I think back to anna senti and she was always very hit and miss with that character there would be issues she wrote that were as good as anything and anything else that that's ever been in a daredevil comic book but then you get these out of left field issues it's like what the hell it's like it's almost like she just didn't really know what she was there to do you know so i don't know i mean i like her in general but she wasn't always the most consistent i don't think i ever read that run on daredevil so i'm Ill, ill-equipped to really comment. So, back to Spider-Man. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, honestly, guys, uh, I'm uh, I, I can keep spinning my wheels on this if you want, but I mean, I've I've pretty much said my piece. We've worked through all of our or all of my uh, notes on this. There are some there's some uh, passing bits of business going on uh, and goings on with. Uh, subplots that would be paid off in future issues of Amazing, or at least the Michelini run on Amazing Spider-Man, and all of that. And that stuff is, you know, perfectly fine. Um, this this business with what is this guy's name? Uh, the, well, the guy that looks like he's uh, the priest from, uh, like he's uh, from The Exorcist. He's uh, Max von or something, trying to track him down. Martin Jacoby, yeah, this is the guy. Um, yeah, goings on with that and the fact that if you keep following this story, I mean, you know, his age honestly should be enough of a giveaway, but just in case it wasn't, he's going to be shacked up with Aunt May before too long. <laughs> the fact is, it doesn't really bear too much on what we're talking about here, so I'm ready to move along whenever you guys are. Aunt May's a tramp. She's, a, she's an octogenarian swinger. Well, I mean, guys, you think about what her dating history is like. Anytime you include Doc Ock in your background, like not just once, by the way, for the record, let me just say two that I can think of off the top of my head. She must have been some kind of a like, I think at this point, we're supposed to assume that Aunt May was a flapper back in the 1920s. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) She was Marissa Tomei back in the uh, back in the 20s. Yeah, there you go. I just picture, you know, Rodney Dangerfield. You must have been something before electricity. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I got two takeaways from the book that stood out. Uh, One is Peter Parker's uh, good use of his elbow to cover up Mary Jane not having any clothes on in one of the panels when she's spraying hairspray in her hair. And the other one, he is acting as a student uh student teacher and he's talking about electrons that's that formula behind him is for ohm's law it is for uh current equals uh voltage divided by resistance something i learned in the navy and i was like okay yeah they taught us about electron flow but i don't understand why that's on there but i'll let it go because it's a nitpick Uh, but it maybe, just like maybe, maybe uh, it just G- jumped right out, and I'm like, what, 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 what? You're, what? you're the Blaine Dowler of today's podcast. I, I, I definitely feel that way. For once, Good and for only once. Actually, there is uh, one final 
one final thing, honestly, and this honestly only just now <laughs> occurred to me. You've got on the very last page, Peter, he's coming. He, he's coming in through uh, the front door of his apartment. He says, Mary Jane, I'm back. And she gets she hops like right up off the couch like, hi, hi. This isn't what it looks like. Hi. We, we weren't doing anything. <laughs> and it's like if this guy was any younger, I don't know if I'd believe that. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is drawn that she got up like right away. So I don't know. I at least want to throw that out. <laughs> and, and then she she gets like cuddly with him at the end, too. Like, you don't have to suspect anything, dear. Well, it's just you could Photoshop the dialogue that they've got going here, and you could really do some kind of funny, especially that last panel where he uh, he looks like somebody just smacked him right in the voice. Wait, wait, let me let me dialogue this panel. All right. So Mr. Jacoby is saying, you know what they say about big hands? <laughs> See, I was going to say, uh, look, son, she's pregnant. You're not the father. We're moving to Montana. Because you know? <laughs> his, 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 his reaction of surprise would be the exact same. So anyway. <laughs> All, right. All right. So you want to grade this? Uh, what's the scale? It's uh, we, we grade it as, as a school grade, A through F. Uh, and we do the cover. Oh, wait, wait, the wait, art. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Are, are you sure you can even use F anymore? Oh, just mm. sorry. Well, you don't um, get participation I, things. So it's cover, art, story, and then overall. And they don't necessarily have to line up because sometimes the uh, the total is more or less than the sum of its parts. I'll give the <clears throat> pardon me. I'll give the uh, the cover. I, I guess since we're starting there, uh, the cover. This is definitely an A. This is one of probably the most iconic spider-man illustrations that todd mcfarlane ever did at least as far as i know this is great this is definitely an a this is this is a great cover the art itself like the interior art yeah i'll give it an a uh this is basically if this was just even a little bit worse i'd probably knock it down to a b but as it as it stands no this is this is an a uh, the story itself, I'm just going to throw this out there. This is kind of a C. Number one, I'm just not a big silver kind of guy. I'm just not. Silver Sable. The other thing is, uh, this may be controversial for some, so if you want to clip out this next comment, believe me, I understand. But I've kind of had it up to here with Nazis as villains in these sorts of things. I mean, it's okay. We can move on now. Um, I'm just kind of tired of it, is what I'm trying to say. So, all in all, like the, this, the the writing, I, I'm prepared to call that a C. But overall, I'm I'm going to say this is actually very much a a, a a B type of issue. You know, it's very competently put together, notwithstanding the fact that it's about uh, Silver Sable and Wild Pack and all that stuff. Uh, you've got the main plot, the subplots, all that stuff moves along. I'm going to say this is a this is a B overall so what do you guys think uh i will give the cover i'll give that an a there's a lot of white space which i'm curious to what paul's gonna say (laughs) um but i think it's broken up enough with uh the webbing 
above the title um, and the actual webs, you know, go- going all over the place behind him. Uh, so I will give the cover an A. The interior art, uh, got got no no qualms with that. Uh, I, but I think Silver Sable must go through a lot of dry cleaning. Keep all those clothes so white or silver, perhaps. Um, <laughs> I was going to say hairspray. Yeah, that too. Yeah, hairspray and dry cleaning are her two biggest uh, budgetary items. Um, and for the story, I, I think I'm right along the lines with you. It's like a C, C plus. So with the story, um, yeah, yeah, B, a B-ish. B for book. <laughs> what say you, Paul? Well, just, just one point that we didn't mention is the cover of 301 is virtually a duplicate of the cover of 300. Uh, the difference being the cover of 300 has Spider-Man in his black costume. Uh, this mm-hmm. one has him in his blue and, and red one. Uh, and 300 in this circle where he's depicted, there's a cityscape behind him. And then in the white background, it's the word 300 over and over and over again. Oh, uh, yeah, I remember that now. Uh, so it, it's, to me, both clever and a lack of imagination at the same time. <laughs> uh you know it's it's clever to to do a variation on the same cover two months in a row but you know it's basically uh you know you could you you take the the cover from 300 and you erase the black lines and you add in the uh the red and red and blue costume uh, lines uh and you basically you know your, your work is done uh that said it is a very striking cover it looks like it you know could be the cover of a compendium or something like that uh, so I'm, I'm going to say it I'm probably gonna say an, has been. It probably has. You're right. Uh, or I would imagine maybe the black costume one is more likely to have been. Uh, oh. But just the same, you know, again, it's virtually the same cover. I'm going to give it an A minus only because it is a recreation and not a totally original cover. If it was totally original, then I'd go with the straight up A. Uh, you know, int- wait, wait, wait. You know what would have been a cool idea is if for like a year they like let's say they took this scene and then moved him a little bit like each month moved him so that if you took all 12 issues you can make like a mini flip book of him swinging or like a mobile even oh hmm. yeah that's that'd be cool <laughs> uh you know i i, I think he could have done some i i do think the cover to 300 is more striking because of the filling the blank space uh, I really would have preferred that they did something with the white, but, you know, I, I can live with it. Um, just the same, uh, the interior artwork, I think the storytelling is pretty solid. Again, it's a constrained Todd McFarlane, and I enjoy constrained Todd McFarlane. So I'm going to say a B-plus on the interior art. Uh, the story itself, I think it's kind of... You know, it's an enjoyable read. It's not not anything special. Uh, you know, if we were to say it's an average book, you're giving it a C. I think it's just a little better than that. Uh, so I'm gonna give it a I'm gonna give it a B minus on the story, and I'm gonna give the book overall a, a B plus. And my oh, computer agrees. <laughs> so moving on from the Marvel. Uh, we have Trent's pick for the DC, which is 
I'm getting off easy here because I, I let you guys both take the books you chose and you left me with the easiest one to do. Uh, it's uh, Secret Origins number 46 from December of 1989, which contained three stories, and I only have to snap size one of them. Uh, so we, we're doing the third story, which is the uh, Legion of Superheroes, The Little Clubhouse That Could. And the story there which is, let me give you the credits on it. Uh, it's written by Gerard Jones, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Ty Templeton, colored by Tom McGraw, and lettered by John Costanza. And the story opens with the Legion looking for, well, actually it opens where they're going to uh, try out some new potential members for the Legion. It's got the uh, the three Standard, what is it, Lightning Lad, Cosmic Boy, and uh, and Saturn Girl. And they're meeting up with, there's seven, two, four, six, yeah, seven potential candidates to be on the Legion. Each uh, is more and, hilarious than the last. <laughs> yeah, and, and they're wonderful. We start off with Arm Fall Off Boy, whose, whose secret power or superpower is that he can detach his arms and turn it into a deadly weapon that he can beat you with. And they, <laughs> they pass on him. And uh, that's followed by uh, the mnemonic kid who, who basically comes with mnemonics. Oh, no, excuse me. Her, her power is that she can make people forget things. Uh, and the more she makes you forget, the you know, the more, the more, the less you have in your mind, because she doesn't actually have the ability to bring anything back. So they, they actually get angry at her and send her off. Uh, the, the third guy is Fortress Lad, who uh, I, I don't know. He's he's reminiscent of the what's his name Pennywise from the from it to me for some reason his look. But he's <laughs> he's an alien creature and he he can basically form a uh, fortress an impenetrable fortress around people to protect them uh and their thoughts are well you know that's nice but there's really not a lot we can do with you and he walks off crying the poor dude uh and then mnemonic girl comes back and she starts destroying their memories uh because she's just kind of a, a biatch and fortress boy <laughs> comes over to help them so he he surrounds them and he's protecting them and meanwhile mnemonic girl is using her memory powers on him and he ends up forgetting everything because of what she does. They end up coming out and take care of her. But now they have their clubhouse because sad mnemonic boy has become their clubhouse because he doesn't have any memory. But apparently he is sentient because he's still thinking, even as you know, they, they start gathering, never give up, never give up. So it's it's kind of a funny story. And yet sad and you know melancholy at the same time because you feel sorry for the sacrifice that this dude makes. Uh, overall, I think Kurt Swan brought his A game to it because I really like the artwork in this. Um, yeah, you know it's would... it's just a very pleasant story to read. Sorry to interrupt Who's... you. What were you saying? No, no, I was agreeing. I'm j- I was just looking to see who was the inker. Ty Templeton, mm-hmm. whose whose name I'm familiar with, but I'm not really big on his work. I couldn't give you, you know, what he did, but I've definitely seen his name on many, many occasions. So I would imagine he's got a fairly big body of work. 
Um, yeah, he's uh, he was kind of uh, this sort of, or, and maybe still is, but certainly in the 80s, he was this kind of uh, sort of journeyman creator that um, DC would put on this, that, and the other thing. Um, basically, he was kind of like a comic book ombudsman. He would just go wherever he was needed. I'm at a loss to think of too many sustained runs that he ever had. Probably. Well, I'm just looking quickly on, on his uh, page on the DC database when you click to him. It's actually got separate entries for Ty Templeton as a writer, penciler, inker, cover artist, colorer, letterer. Uh, and then it's got uh, oh, and it's got connections to his uh, different you know images. But he's also uh, apparently created a few characters. Uh, none of which I'm particularly familiar with. There's Danny Todd, Mr. Wing, Sonny, Jacob Finlay, Zias, Abraham Brainiac Lincoln, <laughs> Mother Partake, and Francis D'Anjou. Oh, so. you've never heard of Francis? Dude, everyone loves Francis D'Anjou. I mean, look, just <laughs> last week, me and Bill, we were having... Like we we'd organized our local chapter of the Francis D'Anjou fan club, and we were surprised you weren't there. Yeah, we we yeah. we wore our berets. Again, no oh, names, no names that I'm familiar with, but he does have characters that he's created and has worked in many different capacities. Well, I think something that um, listeners of this podcast, where they might be maybe most familiar with Ty Templeton, I would say. And Bill, maybe you can throw me a crumb here, or Paul for that matter. The first three, maybe four issues of the Batman Adventures, where he, I believe, was artist and writer, but definitely artist. And what's kind of, by the way, what's kind of interesting about that run of Batman Adventures comics, it's based on Batman the Animated Series. He had not seen an episode at that time. There, there were none. The art style in that and the likeness that he uh, uses, the similarity to the uh, animation style in Batman, the animated series, that all comes from looking at Bruce Timm's character designs and nothing else. So mm -hmm. that's pretty impressive. For me, anyway. Yeah, I do see that he that he drew. I, I see he drew uh, number, issue number three. Just going, working my way back. He drew issue number two. And number one, you're right. He definitely wrote. He definitely drew at least the first three. Yeah. But I guess you know once you pick up the character model, you know you can you can work with that to some extent. But uh, yeah, I mean his his artwork I guess is you know from that school. Yeah, and so I can't help but think that you know the fact that he was maybe already on that same wavelength, maybe that had something to do with why he was chosen for this issue. It's hard to say, but at the very least, I thought that was kind of interesting trivia. I thought I'd just throw that out there, see what comes back to me. So, Yeah. So, you know, just back, back to the story, because we, we we have definitely having a tendency to roam today. Sorry about uh, that. No, don't be. It's just, that's tangents uh, are our trademark, <laughs> but, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious, just, you know, you go to this first page and again, I'm giving Kurt Swan a lot of props here because I, I really like what he did with with this book. Uh, you know, we, we meet Armorph Boy, we meet Mnemonic Girl, and we meet Fortress Lad. But there are four other people here 
who we who we don't really meet, but I mean, one uh, looks kind of like a bearded poison ivy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's there's another one who looks like you know like a uh, contortionist. Kick myself in the back of the head, boy. Yeah. Then then there's uh a, a, like a winged character who almost looks like he has like a walrus face. Uh, walrus harpy man and then the last one is probably the strangest of all it's got one two three four five six arms uh a head that does not appear to have any eyes but has has uh tendrils coming out of it uh and and, and kind of an egg-shaped body very very strange looking. eggplant eggplant boy yeah i'm curious i disagree what... with that i look at this character and he can only have one name bob <laughs> Could be wrong though. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I wonder what they would have, uh, what they would have done with, uh, you know, with, with these characters if they had given them their powers. Now, if you look at the credits on the book, it says "Fortress Lad" created by K. C. Carlson. And the Sunshine Band? What? I'm, I'm wondering if there was some sort of contest to create a, you know, create a Legion member or something like that. Um, no, not actually. Uh, Casey Carlson, he was an assistant editor at a at a DC Comics at this time. And if memory serves, I think he was assistant editor for the Batman titles at this during this era. And I couldn't tell you where he went after this, but for sure. Well, I'm, I say for sure. I'm pretty sure it was Batman. It would have been so, either Batman or Superman. But he was an industry professional. Yeah, I mean, okay. he's he been at uh, DC, I should say, for maybe like maybe five years at that point, maybe okay. less. But I, I think you know, Armorf Boy may be my favorite character ever. Well, it's definitely got the best sound effect. Plorp. <laughs> yeah, as he pulls it <laughs> off. Yeah, see, I always thought that would be. Like the sound of like you you stick a spoon in in this big jar of mayonnaise and then you just <laughs> yank it out like that's probably what it sounds like. Well, I I I, I mean you got to hand it to him. You know, at at first you think oh, what no, and I didn't mean hand it to him because he pulled his arm <laughs> off. <laughs> I wasn't going that deep for the joke, but okay. So you figure well, why wouldn't you just hit him with your fist? You pull your other arm off. You've just doubled your reach. So exactly. You know. And this is the same character. Now, I haven't seen the latest Suicide Squad movie, but isn't this the character that Nathan Fillion played? I don't think it's the same character, but it's. I think his arms detached, though. Yes. His his powers were not (laughs) entirely different. Uh, But could he control his arms once he detached them in the movie? In the movie, he could, yes. Oh, okay. So here he really can't, but. Here he just used his. He used the arm that he removed as a club. And he seems so indignant indignant when they're like uh yeah best of luck fun well you know what they they are a little uh snooty if you ask me uh best of luck finding a group suiting for you know a group suitable for your talents and he's like yeah f off but then, oh, and, then and their the defense, mnemonic their... kid says to uh, take a hike chump and <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in their defense the legion of substitute heroes didn't exist yet in canon mm. So, mm. like, th- this idea of, yeah, good luck finding somebody that uh, you'll be able to join up with. Or, yeah, a group suitable for your talents. It's like, well, there would be one not very long made yeah. up of other losers. So, yeah, he'd have fit right in. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's, again, it's kind of a 
harmless story, but I, I tell you, you know, like it did make me actually feel sorry for this character, this uh, fortress lad. Okay, uh, so fortress lad comes from the planet Fwang, right? Did you catch why it's called the planet Fwang? Cause, well, I'm thinking because that's what the sound it makes when things hit the fortress. Yeah, because, yeah. That's the sound effect. The second panel later, Fwang is the sound when he's being struck. And all Fwangian boys at puberty, that's a tough sentence to say, gain the power to become metallic for a, to become metallic fortresses for the protection of others. Fwang. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> this is just so good. Um, the, I guess the thing that, that actually, do you want me to save my remarks about the story for the wrap up or do you want me to just get into it here? Okay, go jump in. Um, I guess the thing that works for me about this, number one, is just the overall silly nature of this story. Obviously the theme of this issue is the origin of all these different teams, sort of main headquarters and base of operations. This story to the best of my knowledge, which is not, it is not exhaustive or definitive by any means. But I think for the for this era of the Legion, this is the only origin story of their headquarters, their clubhouse, whatever you want to call it, that had ever been written by anybody. And when you think about when this came out, like this was 1987, 89. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> So 1989, the Legion had been one of DC's most popular and highest selling titles for probably like 10 years or something like that at this point. And nobody had ever told this story before. You know, not necessarily like literally this story about Fortress Lad, but the origin of where they're because they've always they always had that really weird looking um clubhouse you know it looked like an upside down rocket ship that's just what it looked like and like like seriously like nobody ever thought to tell a story about that like where that came from Mm. and so it's got this kind of surreal like silver age just just freaking weird and goofy quality about it that was kind of a hallmark of those legion stories from the 50s and 60s where it's just a big bag of wtf like what did i just read and so it's got that quality going for it, but it's also got some actual drama and pathos behind it where this character, in spite of being – he was probably well on his way to being – or he was rejected. He still proved himself to be a worthwhile legionnaire in making this amazing sacrifice. And um, I don't know. It's just – and like like I say, it just mount, it, it just creates the story creates this perfect balance of Silver Age surrealism and just like I say, just just crazy weirdness with some actual heart to it, and that works for me. And um, and so f- for that reason, I mean, I'm for those of you who don't know, I'm a Legion of Superheroes fan from way back. I would not claim to be an expert, but I really like the Legion of Superheroes, and this has been a favorite of mine. For a lot of years now, and so um, I've always just really liked this story. So, yeah, you know, and the thing to me that really just sells it, because because otherwise I'd look back on it and be like, but that's not right, uh, is that because of pneumonic girl or whatever 
she's mnemonic, whatever, uh, because of her stealing memories, by the time the story is over, they don't know or they don't remember that this is a living thing. Yeah. So you don't feel like, well, what are you doing? You know, like if they knew, then you'd be like, no, you got to do everything in your power to try and get this creature back to where, you know, to where he was and let, you know, get his memory back for him, or, you know, or, or re-educate him or do something, you know, just live in him, <laughs> you know, yeah. but, 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 but they do but have a fondness for the know, building. Yeah. They have a fondness that they don't really understand, uh, you know, that, that the reason for it, but that, that all works out well and, and you don't have any problem with that. Whereas, like I said, if, if they understood how this came to be, then, then it's kind of heartless that they turn it into their clubhouse. Uh, well, and that Change does it. kind of raise some internal logic with the story. You mean to tell me this is the only Fuangian they ever met in all of their travels? I mean, I that is something that I've always sort of wondered about. Like, I can buy that they didn't know in the moment or they didn't remember in the moment who Fortress Lad was. But is he the only Fu- and who knows? Maybe maybe he was the only Fuangian. I don't know. I, I thought I heard well, Lightning he- Lad say that of all the Fuangians, he was the most human. <laughs> no, he was the most hollow. <laughs> uh, cha- changing the subject slightly, on the very last page of the story, uh, in the upper right-hand corner, I just think that's a great shot of Saturn Girl. It's a close-up mm-hmm. of her face. I just, you know, the way they detailed the hair. Uh, I, I just, you know, like I said, I, I think Kurt Swan really brought his A game to this, and Ty Templeton inking it really complements it. It's not especially. Uh, it's it's not especially like detailed. Uh, it almost it almost to, you know to go back to where we were before. It's almost like they're playing with like a burn house style, uh, you know, with, with the uh, the character models. But everybody looks very clean. You can easily tell who's who. Uh, the art, you know, it's it, the story is easy to follow. Uh, the facial expressions all are pretty on point. Uh, I think the art is just really solid in this book. I totally this, agree. This story. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And like the thing is, like, I would say, and I don't know how, I don't know how orthodox this opinion, this this opinion really is, but I would say that some of the best work that Kurt Swan did in his entire career was mostly back in the '70s, and by the time you start getting into the '80s, eh. His, I don't know if just he he was creatively spent or what, but just about the time you start getting into the early to mid 80s, his work just had this kind of meh quality about it. I'm not saying it was, it, it was bad because it wasn't, but there's a crying baby outside my door. But there was it, there was just kind of this I don't know like a like this artistic malaise that kind of set in. His his, his and, artwork later on seemed just more bland. I couldn't. Yeah, totally. And honestly, I would say that same thing probably happened to Jim Apero as well. And I would even add maybe even to a greater degree, but definitely it happened with Kurt Swan. And then something like somebody put something in this guy's cornflakes or something in the late 80s because he really got back on it. And again, like you were saying, like this is. I don't know if this was like the first example of him getting his creative batteries re-energized or what, but this was an early example of it. And boy, this art is just gorgeous. And again, it has this silver age yet contemporary quality about it. 
he was the perfect artist to draw this just because of his own history with the Legion. But especially since he was getting back into the groove, you know, this was that that's another part that just I'm not trying to ramble here, but boy, that just really worked for me. So I got a question. Could this have been a older story that he had just sitting around because you brought up the point that it, it, you know, why did nobody ever come up with this? The reason I say that is because Kurt Swan also penciled the first story in this book. And the and unless it's the difference of the inker or the fact that maybe this later the the last story was drawn at an earlier time because the Kurt Swan in this first story is not the court uh, the Kurt Swan in the last story. I'm gonna say I think the Kurt Swan is the same, but the inking is dramatically different. Mm. Because if if you look at just the general layouts of the pages, and and when there's close-ups of faces on it, it does look very similar. Yeah, yeah, you can see, but it's still very, it's very jarring. There's there's a there's a website out there where they have like pages, uh, where they've you know penciled pages, and then they have examples of different inkers doing them. And I couldn't tell you what website it is, but it is when you look at it, it, it really is eye-opening as to the difference an inker can make totally and um the other thing <clears throat> the uh, the I, I just on my own sort of hunch my own sort of i don't know I'm, I'm trying not to say detective work but um this story i don't think could have uh, been created very long before it was Number one, most of these people had only just come into the industry at, at the time this thing um, oh, okay. came out. Like, I think Gerard Jones, mm. boy, that's a can of worms all by itself these days. But um, but Gerard Jones, I think he'd only been in the industry for the most I'm willing to say is three years. But um, uh, Mark Wade ultimately settled all of this in – I don't know if you guys remember. There was a point he had a very short-lived podcast. This God, this is going back like ten or twelve years ago. He had a he had a podcast when he was the EIC at Boom Studios called Fifteen Minutes with Mark Wade. And each episode was rarely fifteen minutes, but at, at one point, much to my delight, this story came up, and he said that um, he had uh, an issue of this of this title that he needed to to fill and he was very clear about the fact that he commissioned this specifically mm. this story and so but i always kind of wondered about that myself except for the and, and so like i say i mean a little bit of my own detective work most of these people are new to the industry combined with mark wade confirming all that but yeah i mean that is a really good point just because the art is just so different from from the first issue so or the first story so I put that down to the inker of that first story, whose name escapes me, but I've never heard of from anything else. So first story, the inking is credited to George Freeman. Yeah, I have no idea who that guy is, and I mm. don't know that name from literally anything else. So, um, yeah. All right. So now to rate this one, I think we're gonna skip the cover because it really is not uh there's no nexus between the cover and the story the covers it's like a blueprint so i guess you know each of the stories in here has something to do with finding a headquarters so it's connected but it's not 
it's not on topic, really. yeah it's not necessarily to this particular story so i'm just going to do the story i think is is a lot of fun uh it it border it gets borderline silly but then it brings it back with with just some pathos and and some real emotion at the end uh, so i i think the story is is you know for whatever it is i think it's a 10 page story uh it's really top notch for what it is so i'm going to give the story an a uh i think the art is you know this is as good as it gets with kurt swan and i i think it's an a also uh so i'm going to give overall an a i really enjoyed this for what it is i'm right there with you i uh the cover notwithstanding it's barely even a cover i mean come on. but uh, so aside from that, I would actually give this an A across the board for everything. For me, if you're going to do a Legion story set in this part of their career, when I think I think they even say at one point like how long they'd been around, but not for very long. I mean, they were just getting started. If you're going to do a story about the Legion in this era of their career, I think it needs to be kind of surreal and kind of weird and goofy and what's even going on <laughs> with this <laughs> so uh yeah the 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 tone and the the tenor of the story the and god knows the amazing art this is just gorgeous art yeah i give this an a across the board so this is great stuff highly recommended well i think no i think <laughs> i i say let them crash oh wait that's I say let him go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've got no no com no complaints um, with anything in this story, uh, except I really hope that a Flangian doesn't find this uh, building <laughs> one day and go, you you animals. <laughs> but uh, no, the art, I you know this is some of the best. Kurt Swan that I've seen and like and compared to what's at the front of the book I, you know a lot of it I think might be on on the anchor uh, but then maybe again he's not trying to enforce his own style on it like I think the other anchor is at the with the first story um, yeah it's kind of sad it's uh, it's melancholy you know and I mean god this this person's powers I mean she makes that little kid forget like it's just, and she can't bring it back, you know. Uh, I'm not saying sometimes people get what they deserve, but eh, eh, just saying. Um, so yeah, this is this is an A. 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 This is a Fonzie book. It's a Fonzie. So that'll do it for the DC. And moving on to our indie, there's no reason to end it on a happy high note. So let's go to our indie. Golly, yeah. <laughs> so hey, come on the synopsis is easy well, yeah the <laughs> synopsis is easy but i i got some i got some bones to pick with you because uh okay here's the synopsis uh, this is the synopsis provided by trentus magnus billy kincaid gets released billy kincaid goes back to his usual ways spawn takes exception to that no more billy kincaid until issue eight that is End of synopsis. <laughs> so this is where I'm going to curse you. So I I bought Spawn when it was coming out. Uh, I kind of 
it's been a long time since I've read any of them. I think I collected up to like maybe issue 80 um, because this came out in 92 and up until I was in the Navy until mid 94. And, and then I was still collecting a little after. So I had, I still had disposable income to just blow on, on, on comics. So, uh, you know, we have our typical spawn cover spawn on a building somewhere doing something with chains and his, uh, and his, uh, cape which is everywhere <laughs> drawn by todd mcfarland um and and you know what i oh one good thing i've missed so much when i read this because as soon now you guys are gonna think i'm crazy as soon as i saw the lettering i was like oh and then i checked it's tom orzakowski yes. i fell in love with his lettering from back in the day on the burn austin x-men I know that sounds crazy, but for the longest time, and I think he did Thor, and he he was a Marvel mainstay, and I, for some reason, his lettering always stood out to me with or the way he'll accentuate certain words. I mean, any comments on that? Am I just goof? No, um, I always thought that um, my first exposure to him, just because of my age, this was it. You know, I didn't know Tom Orsakowski from anything else, and so... This was my first, well, this not this issue literally, but I mean this spawned the title. This was my my first exposure to to him and his work and his style. And I'm more than most letterers. I've always said that Tom Morsikowski is kind of like an unindicted uh, co not co-creator, but co-conspirator perhaps, where he's got a level of creative input that the average letter letterer, let's face it, just doesn't ever get yes um and i've heard people say this and that about richard starkings and you know how he sort of participated in the story with his lettering and it's just i've never never really seen that myself tom Orzakowski, it's impossible to miss so yes i completely agree with you yeah i i it's just and i i think to this day, he's one of the few letterers that I actually remember by name. And he was, I know he was the first one that I came to recognize over time and would always be excited going, Ooh, I'm, I'm going to get something a little bit extra when I'm reading because he's going to accentuate stuff and he's going to make it to me feel a little more like a, you know, almost like you can hear the dialogue in your head instead of just reading it in your head. Like on the first page where he says, you know, yes, your time here has been so rewarding, so eventful, so therapeutic. Just those those three so's are a little bit bolder. So you can as I'm reading it, I put more emphasis on those. And it's and it's subtle because you don't have to do that. Like, I don't know if 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 Todd McFarlane told him to do that but it seems like anything i've ever seen him letter it always seems to be a little bit better <laughs> that was a rhyme sorry couldn't, i couldn't agree more uh, now on to my bone to pick with you <laughs> so i really i remember really enjoying spawn and everything and then i read this book and now that i have uh grown children and maybe someday grandchildren the picture of him putting fingers gluing them to a painting saying that their finger paints just disturbed the f*** out of me. Yeah, um, sorry about that. Look, no, no, like, no. I, 
but it's it's as when you reread something 20 30 years after the fact and things in your life have changed you get a different you 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 just get a different outlook or a different aspect of it that you didn't have before you know certain movies the same way certain books you read them you've had enough life experiences to change how you process information i didn't even remember this but i know i read this but that but when i came to that picture i just stopped in my tracks and i was like ooh wow ooh yeah. No, it's very it's very disturbing. This this book is disturbing. <laughs> and you haven't actually given you a synopsis yet, so I don't want to get too far into it. That was a synopsis. Oh, that was okay, so you're done. Yeah, that's I mean that's cool. pretty that's much fine. I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, we could go further, but it's it's a very meaty wordy tome. But I mean, but the overall gist is yeah, the the guy gets out, he's been faking it, he goes back to what he used to do. Spawn has his own kid and never other things ensue, and he basically uh he takes care of him until uh, issue eight, which I kind of remember. Like he goes to hell, but I don't remember what is. Does he? He doesn't come. No, he doesn't come back as the Violator. That's. Uh, I'm thinking of John Leguizamo as the big fat clown. Yeah. From no, the movie. No, he he gets. Uh, my memory of it is, he gets. He becomes uh, a hell spawn himself, and mm-hmm. you get the idea. This is the first time he's ever experienced any kind of remorse for what he's done with his life that led him to this point. And so I'm I'm not going to say that it's like it's a story of redemption. It's <laughs> there is no redemption going on here, but it's like at the same time he finally gets it. You know, well actually he gets it in this issue. <laughs> no, like right <laughs> to the chest he gets it, but uh, he understands a little bit more in Spawn yeah. number eight, and you get the sense this is his first real experience with genuine remorse, and it's too late. I mean, yeah. I mean, I. I when I read this, I felt like, okay, when when he wrote this, McFarlane had something to say. And it was something, you know, about how horrible uh, child abuse is. I do think we, we get mixed messages in stories sometimes because you, you read the ones where they're like, oh, you know, we, we have to forgive and, and understand that people can turn a new leaf and blah, blah, blah. And then this is like, now nah, they'll fool you and they're, they're going to get out and do the same thing over again. Uh, mm. So, that there's, you know, there's a lot of a lot to be just kind of gone through mentally on that. And certainly it, it, you know, it, it raises a lot of moral questions and dilemmas. Uh, So I, I commend McFarlane for trying to, you know, hit on a very heavy topic and, and, you know, basically come down hard on it. Um, The artwork in the story, and this, this goes to a little bit what, what we said in the first part of this episode uh, you know the uninhibited McFarlane. Yeah, and yeah, this a lot is... of it is is decent, but a lot of it is very inconsistent. You know, we we go from characters who look you know outright scary when you look at them to characters that look just a bit too cartoony. Uh, and and the story, you know, I, I've never really been a huge fan of McFarlane, the storyteller in his sequential art because I, I i always felt like his artwork requires you to read the words and there's nothing wrong with reading the words because i think it sometimes it, it sounds like you know like i'm i'm being an idiot uh you know if i gotta read the words it's not good that's not the point i'm trying to make the point I, i'm trying to make is that you should be able to follow the story 
from the artwork and then get the emphasis on it from the words. The same way if you're watching a movie, you know, if, if you're just watching it with the sound off, you should still be able to follow a lot of what's going on. You may not get the motivations, you may not get the explanations, but you're going to see the, the smooth transition of different scenes that's going to carry you through. And the same thing holds true for, for you know, sequential art. Uh, you know, I think, you know, when they storyboard movies, that's exactly why they do it. Uh, so the storytelling, I think, leaves a little something to be, you know, desired. Uh, again, the you know, I feel like there's inconsistency in the art as far as some of it almost looks like, you know, like a, an underground comic. Some of it looks like it's out of like a mad magazine type thing. And some of it looks downright scary. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's just a lot going on in the artwork that. I think detracts from the story a little bit. Well, I have to wonder with McFarland here, like I'm trying to think back to some of the spider. Well, the first book we, we covered when there was action going on, you could, you could still kind of see what was going on, but like here, uh, towards the middle of the book, um, I don't know the page number. I want to say, uh, like page 14, maybe, um, like when the cop car is coming through the street and people are jumping out of the way and there's people running, it's very hard to see what's going on. But whereas in other spots, it's it's pretty clear. It's it's almost like if there's too much action, it kind of now maybe he's doing that on purpose as a choice to make it look blurred or confusing on purpose. Or, you know, maybe just I don't chaos. necessarily agree with the choice if that's his choice, but, you know, at least it would show a, a level of control over the artwork. And then, like, the other one where the two police uh, guys are in, in the car talking back and forth, I mean, that's pretty detailed. There's no, you know, when they're on the detail out, outside Billy Kincaid's mm-hmm. house and, um, you know, and then we get to the uh, the last page where he's, sh- <laughs> he's strung up. He's got ice cream scoops and popsicle sticks sticking in his body and, uh, you know. It says boys scream, the girls scream. So I made him. So I made him scream and scream and scream. And that's where one of the police had came in and found found his body strung up. Now, uh, Paul, I don't know if you're aware or if you remember how much Spawn you read. Uh, very, on one very of the pages, little. there's a uh, there's a number eight zero nine two Spawn the Spawn symbol on the left and a uh, like a a, a uh, hourglass on the right. I remember that this was something that was recurring in a countdown because it, I believe it was tied to how many times or how much of Spawn's power that he used. And he had a finite amount. And I don't remember what the final outcome was. Do, uh, do you remember Trent? Um, I think I dropped out of Spawn. I think on, I, a, on a regular basis, I want to say somewhere in the 30s and then completely after issue number 50. But, yeah, that's I don't know. So I can't tell you what the exact outcome was, but you've you've basically got it. You know, the idea is his resurrection is completely temporary. He's got a certain amount of power that once he uses up. Bam, he's going back to hell. And now he, yeah, I think that was. Yeah, he'll he'll go back. So that's so at one point he's like. He's trying not to use it, but then, uh, oh, what was the name of the demon or the de- the devil? Malbolgia. Uh, yeah, kept throwing things and th- throwing things at his way to make him use up his power, if I remember correctly. Yep. Nope, you got it. That's it. Hmm. 
Yeah, I do remember that being a storyline that was going on, but I've never really read much Spawn. Uh, you know, again, by this time I had been kind of like cooled off to McFarlane a little bit. Uh, but I don't want you know I don't want to make this where I'm just ragging on McFarlane because, like I said, I give him credit for trying to really come up with a powerful story, and I think it is powerful. Uh, it's disturbing at the same time. Uh, one of the things I don't like, and again, we talk about you know the un, unrestrained McFarlane. The splash page where where uh, Spawn's cape is like six stories tall. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Do you? Well, and yeah, and honestly, I mean, first off, it just looks cool. And if you ask me, when it comes to comics, the rule of cool always applies. So even if something if something in your art doesn't necessarily make logical sense, as long as it looks cool, I'm willing to. I'm so, willing to, to to let you kind of have your way. But so cool trumps physics and cool trumps logic. And, and that's fine. But I can kind of no prize this a little bit because his I, I and I think I don't know if it's if this has been explicitly revealed in any of the spawn comics up to this point yet. But his costume is actually a symbiote. It's alive. And so maybe whenever Spawn jumps off a building, the symbiote instinctively knows, oh, okay, so I need to kind of stretch out the cape and it can kind of form this little glider thing. And, you know, I can I can excuse it kind of on a logic level somewhat. I think I can. I think I remember that, too, because he can the chains kind of do the same thing, too. If I remember correctly, he can control them. Yeah. But, yeah, the cape kind of does seem to grow on its own uh and in fact i have a spawn statue uh well not a statue it was like a like a diorama thing a spawn standing up and actually i had to glue the freaking cape on because it kept falling off because it, it stands up on its own over his head and he's like he's jumping down and then there was like a couple little bats you could attach to it i've lost some of the bats over the years and mm. and actually because i couldn't fit it in on a shelf it, it had a metal st- stick standing into the stand. I had to cut about three inches off the stand. But hey, <laughs> I still love it. That's awesome. Um, I guess for me, with that, uh, you know, with this issue, uh, I first, I think the first time I had to read this as a back issue because I, I was sort of a latecomer to Spawn, and so honestly, I've got just such a soft spot for image really all through the 90s i just i love those those because that's when i i'm not sure where you guys are coming from with it but that was just when i was really coming of age as a comic book fan and so you had all of this cool stuff that was happening with dc all this cool stuff that's happening with marvel all this cool stuff with image and and then also cool stuff with other uh indie companies that were around and at least for me it was just a really inspired time as a comic book fan and so reading this with having read other spawn comics but never specifically this one before having no idea what i was about to get myself into because the internet wasn't really a thing as much back then had no idea you know how controversial this this issue was in its time um but it was it was apparently uh, controversial enough that uh, McFarlane's wife, who edited the first couple of issues of this comic book series, she read the script and just noped right out of there. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
I guess, you know, I mean, it didn't cause fatal offense. As far as I know, they're, they're still married, but the, the auteur theory, it does seem to be true when it comes to Todd McFarlane. Spawn is him. Like the, the comic book Spawn is him, you know, his ideas, his beliefs, his baggage, if that's what you want to call it. You know, he does, he said that he really does believe that if somebody died, no matter what direction they went in, if somebody dies before they they really have a chance to be prepared for it, if they could, they would trade whatever they had to trade. They would make whatever deal they have to make to get a chance to come back and say goodbye. And another bit of McFarland's baggage, he's made it pretty clear that if a sex offender ever moves into his neighborhood and something happens to that sex offender, the cops aren't doing their job if they don't stop by his house to just talk to him. You know, um, he said that, you know, a sex offender is just not going to last very long in his neighborhood if he's got anything to say about it, you know, which um, this, I think, is a revenge fantasy for something that never really happened. But this at, at least this is what he thinks he would do. Now, if you're actually in the moment, how can you possibly know something like that? But nevertheless, you know, this is what McFarlane, I think, believes he would do if he had the chance to get his hand on somebody like Billy Kincaid, get his hands on him, what he would do to him, you know? And I don't understand making such a big deal out of it that he's going to draw an entire issue about this, but Hey, you know, you do you, guy. So all in all, this was a real sucker punch reading it. I think I was like 13 or 14 mm. that first time I read it. And, you know, I, I don't want to make the 90s sound like they were just such this more innocent time and certain things didn't happen. They happened back then, too, you know. But oh, I just didn't have as much of an exposure to that sort of thing. And God knows didn't have exposure to that sort of thing in a comic book. And so I, I, like I say, I walked into this thing completely unprepared, but there was a part of me that at least at that time, I could understand the editorialization that McFarlane was going for here. In as much as if somebody is truly this big of a threat to society and prison, for whatever reason, just can't or won't hold him. Well, what else might be a possibility, you know? Which is an easy, it's still stupid, but it's still kind of an easy train of thought for a 14-year-old or 13 or however old I was to make. You know, I mean, it, it, it's dumb, but I think I've got an excuse, you know? The other editorialization that McFarlane is making here is that the story is officially Spawn versus Billy Kincaid. Unofficially, it's Batman versus the Joker. This is the way that Todd McFarlane believes that Batman's first encounter with the Joker should have ended. You shouldn't hmm. give him a chance to cause this much damage ever again, is, is really his point. Now, the idea of that is, it, number one, it overlooks the reality that we have to make new issues every single month and we don't want to have to create new villains every single time. And number two, it just kind of overlooks the fact that 
we have a criminal justice system and it may not be perfect, but you, the regular person, however much that applies to spawn, the regular person, after a certain point, maybe you do have some kind of a legal right to take the law into your own hands vis-a-vis self-defense or something like that. This is kind of over the line, not just in terms of content, who Billy Kincaid is and what he represents. It's over the line that this is just inappropriate. The cops were already on this case. And the minute they had anything, anything at all on on Billy Kincaid, he was going down for good this time. And it's it's just kind of strange to me that McFarlane couldn't see the flaw in his own logic at the very moment he's writing the flaw in his logic out. You know, I, I just always thought, even as a kid, but, I thought that was just kind of ironic. But the problem, well, I'm I'm not faulting you there, but the only problem is, is that the police, although they were on him, they still didn't catch him. He's already killed another child. So, yeah, they may, you know, catch him, but he's already killed again. So, which, I mean, of course, Spawn didn't stop another child from being killed either. So, I mean, it, it is vengeance, and, you know, that is, I mean, the justice system should be there. And I don't know if I'm really, if I'm making my point or not. No, I mean, I, I, I and I get all that, but it's just, look, I mean, I'm not, I really don't want to, you know, get too, you know, uh, political or, 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 or too much or, or too much of any of that, especially on somebody else's podcast. But I just want to throw this out there just to just to kind of explain my own baggage. Mm-hmm. Better that ten guilty men go free than one innocent man get sent up. And I think that's not just in terms of criminal justice. That kind of needs to apply across the board. You need to give the 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 system a chance to work its magic, you know? It's mm-hmm. not always easy and it's not always pleasant. And there, you know what? Maybe there are going to be times when you don't necessarily get the instant gratification of justice being served at the exact moment that you want it. But at the end of the day, we need to have checks and balances to protect the innocent. But see, now I can't tell you you're wrong, but I can tell you it's not as simple as that. Because what if those two, 10 guilty people who go free in order to protect that one innocent one do damage to 10 innocent people each? So now there's 100 innocent people who are damaged because you didn't want to take a chance on one being imprisoned wrongly. And I'm not saying that my my thing gives you the right answer. All I'm saying is it's not as simple as just throwing a, a, a rule out there. I look, I I fully understand all that, and this is one of those things where, you know, it, it's okay for people to have uh, different opinions. You know, it's okay to disagree, but at least as it relates to this specific story, the failure here is not on the part of the police. It's not the 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 failure of um, the uh, judiciary. This is a failure of. I don't think they even say where exactly it was that he's locked up, except as like a mental hospital. Or something like that. A fair them a, to properly diagnose that he was either just stringing them along or that he's been rehabilitated. Right. And 
and and look, you can't go through life pointing fingers at everyone else. Well, this is your fault. This is your and and I, and I understand that. But at the end of the day, the police did what they were supposed to do. The judiciary did what they were supposed to do. And honestly, the only thing that saved Billy Kincaid's life last time is the fact that Al Simmons couldn't get there in time. That's the only reason he he's alive at the start of this story. I mean, ultimately, it's the it's the penal system, for lack of a more specific description. They're the ones that ultimately drop the nachos on this. And the anyway, so I'm like, you know, Paul, please don't take this as like some sort of like an attack on you. I'm just saying no, that no, no. I think ultimately, yeah, I mean, somebody got obviously somebody got hurt and it it's completely possible that somebody else could have as well. And, and I'm, and I'm certainly not saying that those are acceptable losses. I'm just saying that the system needs time to work, you know? And so, uh, but it, like I say, I do acknowledge the fact and, and you know what, look, if you want to know what a hypocrite I am, I'm sitting here saying all this. I've got a, a baby daughter in the in the next room or two over from here, and in a weird kind of way, I actually feel sorry for anyone who ever messes with her, because I'm not necessarily going to call the police. So anyway, so if you want to know what a hypocrite I am, well, there you go. So yeah, well, it's you know, it's it's. The explanation I had for that or I had heard for that, I remember having a debate about, uh, you know, capital punishment in, uh, you know, when I was in high school many, many years ago. And the talk then was, well, when it's personal to you, you can't think of it in the same way that you would if you're removed from it. So if it's, you know, if it's too personal, you're going to let emotions take over. And obviously somebody in any way threatens or damages your, your child, you know, you, you're, you're not going to think rationally, well, this is a fair punishment. You're going to probably totally lose control and, and uh, understandably so. So you need to remove yourself from that. And my point was not, oh, like I said, that this is wrong and this is right. My point is there are no simple solutions. There, there is no way to sit there and say we can quantify this in a way uh, that it's acceptable because you can't quantify because you don't know, you know, when they talk about, uh, you know, deterrence to future crime, you never know. You can look at past statistics and compare them to current, but you don't know for a fact that the, the crimes have changed in the way that people say. And I didn't want to really get too far into the, you know, to the ideology of this because, you know, there's, there's just so many different places you can go. Uh, but my, my really only point is there are so many different places you can go. <laughs> no, that's completely true. Um, now, one of the things that I love or loved about the Spawn uh, title, like the ongoing book, is uh, and we, and we get it here. I uh, this looks like it's page six, perhaps, but we get these talking head newscasters, and there's, it's always the same three. And you have this um, Asian American; she's on CNN, and how they have the rights to use the CNN logo as well as the E Entertainment logo, I don't I don't have an answer for you. But apparently, no one ever got sued over that. So hey. 
Um, so you've got the CNN woman, and she typically gives you sort of commentary on the story up to this point from the standpoint of uh, objective, mainstream broadcast journalism. Then you've got the E! Entertainment guy who gives you the, the I guess, the uh, entertainment industry's take on the whatever TNT it is. The take. Yeah, exactly that. But before there even was such a thing, you know. <laughs> and then my personal favorite, um, you have this uh, super duper reactionary. It, this guy really is a parody of uh, various right wing media figures of that time. And the part about this that really works for me is that every time you see this guy, he's always on a different network because he got fired from the last one because he made some incendiary remark. And in this issue, his incendiary remark is. My only wish is that some – and he's referring to Billy Kincaid. My only wish is that someone breaks his back. Hello? Are you listening, Mr. Shadowhawk? Boom. Fire. <laughs> which, which was another image comic. Yes, exactly that. Yeah. And uh, this it, it's just it's one of those things that if you notice that there's always a different logo in this guy's uh, little mugshot here, it just makes it so much better. So <laughs> I've always loved that element. Now, as to um, the writing in this issue, I think McFarlane gets a lot of grief, like McFarlane, the writer, gets a lot of grief that McFarlane, the artist, doesn't seem to ever get. And what I try to remind people is by the time you get to this is spawn number five, by the time Mm -hmm. you get to spawn number five, McFarlane in his career has probably drawn probably at least 500 pages, maybe. Probably more, but that's like the minimum. Todd McFarlane, the writer, has written probably less than 200. You know, maybe less than 100, but certainly less than 200 uh, comic book pages. And I think we need to kind of put the writing on a little bit more of a curve. You know, he's going through the same curve as a writer that he went through as an artist. It's just happening later. In his career, and that's just something I think people need to be aware of. So, anyway, did you catch uh, when on that on the opposite page from the Talking Heads that there's a a bottle that has the title Moore, M O O R E, uh, is that would be maybe Alan Moore and Miller, like that's a bottle of beer or something, Frank Miller. Yeah, I, I was in, that's in, in the garbage. Yeah, <laughs> that's a. Uh, that, that's in my notes. There's there are two other Easter eggs actually. Yeah, there's up at the top of that. There's uh, what, uh I can't remember how you pronounce. It. Is it Cerebus or Cerberus? The Yardvark? Um, yeah, it's misspelled. So, um, the Dave Sim character, you, you mm-hmm. I think it's pronounced uh, Cerebus. I thought something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and then you've Cerberus also Cerberus got... is the dog that guards the gates of hell. I think. Yeah. Know. Exactly. Yeah. And then the other Easter egg is obviously Felix the cat. Mm-hmm. Who or, apparently well, Cerberus is also my wife. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> well, Luckily um, for you, does not listen to this show. <laughs> well, we can hope. Um, and then there's Felix the cat, who apparently oh, yeah. Felix is in every single issue of at least Amazing Spider-Man. I don't know about adjectiveless Spider-Man, but definitely in amazing spider-man and up to this point i think in every issue of spawn there's 
Felix is hidden in there somewhere. You just got to look for him. Mm. So anyway, that's basically what I've got. Well, jumping back to your to your mention of uh, the 90s. So like I said earlier, when because I, I was in the service, so I had a lot of disposable income back then. So I was buying Shadowhawk, Deathblow, uh, Gen 13. Oh, yeah, that's a good Danger one. Girl, yeah. um, uh, Wildcats, which I still have. Like I think there's three or four different volumes. I've almost got all of them, but but I love the Jim Lee Watt Wildcats early on. Oh yeah, so, that's great. I love Wildcats. So you know, for as much as people rag on the nineties, plus plus I've got like a lot of the one like Profit and Bad Rock and uh, what was the other uh, that went with Death Blow? There was was it Team Seven? I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all that stuff. So that's you know. I know a lot of people are like, yeah, but hey, I had the money to buy it. I was buying it. I was that guy. I bought as much as I could. But what I usually tell people is, is, look, guy, you try putting together a comic book collection when you're 13 years old and you've got a $10 a week allowance to work with. Good luck. Let me know how that goes. Yeah. So, and oh, and not only do you have to keep up with the new stuff that's coming out, you have to flesh out your collection with back issues as well. Have fun. Have fun. Let me know how that goes. <laughs> That's, no, pretty I'm not, much, I'm not that's pretty much the world that we all had to grow up in when when we decided we were going to collect comics. The difference is not at a buck ninety-five cover price, in, dude. <laughs> when I decided it in the 1970s, even though my allowance was less than yours, the comic book costs were so much less that I was still able to get more with with my allowance than you were. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, she, well, I mean, with a ten dollar allowance now, you'd only be able to get two books if you're lucky. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. I don't even know what my allowance would be these days, or if I'd even get one. Well, now, you know, when you have a kid now, you well, you have a young kid now, so you're going to have to see. By the time she's ready, her allowance is going to be like $150 a week. Oh, God, I shudder to think. That's a bill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it'll, it'll be called the cell phone bill. Yeah, you know, there that's, you, that's I like another the way fact. you think. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, um, I, I, I just really – I dig – it's weird to say I really enjoy this issue because I feel like a freak even saying that. But I like at least what McFar- what I think McFarlane was up to in this issue, like his his sort of mission statement. You know, like there is a summary way of dealing with this problem. You know, I'm not saying you have to agree with it, but, you know, at least – hey, points for putting his cards on the table. Yeah. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would I – would, I think, you know, I think – there is something to be commended that he was trying to send a serious message. And that's something I criticize sometimes because I think sometimes the writers are too heavy handed with their messages and, uh, you know, but that often has to do with when, when the writers are putting in, you know, politically controversial things that they feel strongly about. I don't think there's any proper thinking person Who's going to sit here and say, no, child abuse is right. Why, why would you go against that? You know, I don't think that's, you don't have to worry about that argument. You know, it, it does, it is an easy target in that respect. And it brings us back to the first one. You know, when you talk about Nazis, you know, yeah, it's easy to throw Nazis in as the villain all the time, because who's going to say, who's going to stand up and defend them? You know, that, that, that's not, not an issue. So, you know, there is some of that, but all that said, I think we're okay with, 
going after child abuse. And I think he does so in a, a disturbing manner where you aren't going to look at it and 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 just be able to shake it off. You know, you know, Bill was talking about the, the image that, that haunted him somewhat. And, and I can kind of relate to that and, and understand. Uh, so. You know, there's, there's something to be, said, to be said for all of that. And I, I, I like I said, I tip my hat to him in this instance for, for trying to to for trying to be disturbing uh, in a way where it's going to make you say, hey, you know what? This really turns my stomach a little bit that somebody would do this uh, without being overly graphic. You know, I mean, there is there are disturbing images, but there's not, you know, there's not a lot of blood throughout it. Uh you know, with the exception of the very last page. Uh, so it, 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 I think it serves its purpose is really what I'm trying to say. Agreed. Yeah. Now, I, we, we really didn't comment. I, I got to tell you, I think the cover is exceptionally striking. I really like this cover. This is, this is the poster image cover, you know, in, in all its glory. You know, of all the early Spawn covers, and most of them are kind of non sequitur in terms of the interior. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, but most of them. But of them all, I'll say the first ten. This is the one that I always thought you could make a poster out of. And it, to this day, I mean, as far as I know, anyway, the this that just never happened. You know, this has never been made into a poster, but... 13-year-old me would have spared no effort in tracking that poster down. This is a great cover. Uh, the details, the chains, the cape, it's um, it's just the, extremely the well mood. done. And it's the mood. Very yeah. somber, but you know, but heroic at the same time. It, it, there's, there's a lot to be said for it. The, the, you know, the cityscape behind him is, is well rendered. Uh, even even the, you know, some of the detail on the brickwork on the building he's standing on. It's just, you know, there's a lot lot going on and it's really well done i always thought this was sort of the in in its own strange kind of way this is like the typical todd mcfarlane cover because the amount of black and just general empty space on this cover there's a lot more empty space going on here than you might think you've got detailing on spawn in general detailing on the building that he's standing on but that's really it i mean the there's not a uh there's not a whole lot going on with this cover especially in the background which is mostly it's mostly made up of the silhouettes of buildings but you don't have to go to all the trouble of fully drawing out all of the buildings with all of the detail and all of you know it's just it's it's there you get the impression of it it's powerful it's moody it's dark but i could believe he probably churned this cover out and it's hard to tell you how many days because he didn't necessarily draw every single day, but uh, he could have probably cranked this thing out in about 12 hours. And it looks, it's just, it's its kind of misleading. It seems like there's a lot of detail here. It's really not. I'd say probably it could be as much as like total, maybe 50% of this cover technically is made up of black. But it's well-placed black and Again, Couldn't agree know, more. Totally mm-hmm. effective. The only thing, you know, as as you look closer and you start nitpicking over things, apparently, uh, like I like the way the buildings look because that is, you know, that's a nighttime skyline. Uh, but every building only has windows on one side, apparently. 
Yeah. Yeah. I Which I didn't even that, notice too. until I started looking closely at it. But hey, that says something about um, how well done the illusion actually is that you didn't pick up on it right away. So yeah, exactly. So, yeah, like I say, I would have, I would have, I would have spared no expense, spared no effort in getting this as a poster if a poster had existed. And in a in a way, I'm kind of sad that one never did. As far as that I know, ten dollar allowance was toast. Yeah. It, <laughs> I'll, I'll, after I look at that point, you're starting to skip lunches. You know, it's cool. <laughs> all right. I think we're ready to rate this one. Bill, you did the uh, synopsis, so it's all yours. Well, technically, uh, Trent did the synopsis, but but yeah, I'll go first. Um, <laughs> I will give the cover an A. Uh, I'll even give it an A+. Uh, the interior art, e- even though this is, you know, a, a much more progressed Todd McFarlane. Um, I'm I'm going to give this art, even with the uh, disturbing parts, I'm going to give it an A as well. The subject matter, even though it's disturbing uh, and it's generated a lot of discussion, uh, I am going to give it uh, and, and you know for some of the ongoing things that'll come out of this and and uh, just overall i really remember enjoying re- well not reading this particular issue but just you know overall uh, uh spawn way back in the day when i was reading it uh i i always enjoyed it so I, i'm gonna give the story an a as well so it's a it's a solid a book for me uh, if anybody has any complaints of that too bad get your own damn podcast <laughs> <laughs> okay all right Fair enough. Um, I'll give the uh, the cover a solid A plus. You know, there's no way I can say I would buy this as, if it was a poster, then turn around and give it a C. So I think we all <laughs> saw that saw that one coming. Um, definitely an A plus. Art is uh, an A plus. And I also just want to throw in a um, kind of like an honorable mention category here: the coloring. Um, in this case, I really do consider the coloring to be part of the art. Um, it's like anything. You kind of need to contextualize when this comic book came out. And so the computerized coloring effects that are used in this issue, they may seem a little whatever these days. But, man, when when these when this first run of image comics was coming out there was literally nothing else on the stands that looked like this yeah cuz i you know? think this is before marvel bought up malibu to get their coloring yeah that was like 3 years or 4 years you know and yeah, even because, then i never yeah. thought malibu's coloring even came close to um this is uh steve olaf yeah i never thought they even came close so um yeah this so i mean you you can look at some of this and think well the coloring is kind of dated perhaps by modern standards and you know what maybe you know what maybe you're even right but at the time like i say this was just such eye candy you know like the glow effect that's going on and every time you see spawn's eyes or um, the gradient uh, pattern, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, the uh, gradient coloring effects that are uh, going on. All of this stuff. I mean, it this had just never been done in comics before, and um, for me, all of that stuff sort of worked into a trademark for Image Comics, where 
they looked different and basically in every possible way, they just looked different from everything else that was on the stands at the time. And um, the, the product, of course the cover price is higher, but the production value was just so, so much higher, so much further ahead than uh, DC and Marvel that the competition caused DC and Marvel to kind of up their own game, you know, uh, not right away, but over time. And, um, and I'm not saying all of that happened just because of the coloring, but that was a, that was a big part of it. So I at least wanted to throw all that in there in terms of the story, like in terms of execution, again, um, this is Todd McFarlane, the inexperienced writer paired with Todd McFarlane, the art veteran, you know, sometimes the two don't necessarily work well together. And in this case, I do think there were more subtle and less direct and less graphic ways of telling this story. But considering where McFarlane was at in his evolution as a writer at the time, or at the time, I'm I'm willing to kind of look the other way on that. But still, this is, again, in terms of execution, this is not the best. Um, in terms of the content, it definitely hits a lot harder now that I'm uh, a father myself. So those two factors taken together, I'm going to give, I think I'm being generous here, but I'm going to give the writing on this issue a B, but I, I could be talked into a C, but I don't know. I'm kind of feeling a B on this one. Um, this is a good issue. And maybe the best compliment that you can give to something like this as graphic and as gut wrenching as this issue might be Spawn didn't get to do this for free. This, d the decision to do this, it has lasting consequences for Twitch and Sam, for Spawn himself, um, for the story that's being told. This was not a disposable issue. Big stuff comes out of this. And so I might nitpick the logic of, uh, or the, maybe not the logic, but like the sort of the, uh, moral philosophy that McFarlane is exploring in this issue. I can't say that he just swept this under the rug and moved on to something else. Stuff came out of this. So if you need a justification for why I'm giving this writing a B, that could be why. So all in all, I'll, I'll give this issue itself an A, maybe an A minus perhaps. But uh, I, like I say, I've just got such a soft spot for this era of image. It's, it, it's, it was just a really inspired time for me as a comic book collector, and uh, uh, I enjoyed these first bunch of issues of Spawn, this one included. So there you go. Okay, now I don't have the same nostalgic point of view on image, uh, so I feel like I'm more removed from the story and the character and just the time that this book came out than you guys. <clears throat> and... I, I think that serves me well, actually, in this instance, to be a little bit removed from it. Like I said, the cover, I think it's with without having an actual nexus to what's going on in the story. This is, you know, pretty much as good as you're going to get. So I am going to give it an A plus on the cover. Uh, 
you know, that's probably the only criticism I can give you is it doesn't really give you any kind of insight in, as to what the story is going to be. Uh, but I'm, I'm certainly willing to overlook that in this instance. The yeah. interior art, I'm a little less high on it than you guys, because I just see inconsistencies in the way that the characters are drawn and, and just the, the story itself. Uh, it, it, it definitely seems... It, it almost seems like McFarlane is changing styles as he goes along in the book sometimes. And, and I don't really think that serves any good purpose. So I'm going to drop it slightly. I do think it's, it's, you know, it's well done overall. I think the storytelling lacks a little bit. So I'm going to say a B minus on the interior art, but, uh, but it's, it's certainly not saying that it's bad and it's, uh, you know, it, it's got a lot going for it overall, but I, I think there's just areas where it could be better. I'm really torn about the story because it's very disturbing and I usually don't like <laughs> I don't like my comics to be disturbing. I don't read them to be disturbed. I, I read them to enjoy the time. Uh, but I also think, you know, it's, it's presenting a strong message. It's meant to be disturbing. It's like when you see a disturbing movie, uh, you know, and, and, and it stays with you. So I'm also going to give it a B on the story. But if you got me at the right moment, you could probably talk me into a C. And if you got me at the right moment, you could probably talk me into an A. Uh, I'm, I'm really torn with mm. the story itself. I could see myself going either way. But I, I, I'm going to go with B because I feel like that's the middle ground uh, of where you might be able to con- convince me to go. So overall, I'm, I'm going to give the book a solid B. And uh, again, I don't really have the connection to Spawn that you guys do. So removing myself for it like i said i feel like i'm i'm able to really give an independent opinion of it uh and and that's where i landed on it so and it, it you know i i also have been critical of mcfarlane in the past uh you know later mcfarlane again mcfarlane without uh constraints but i think it served him well in this book for the most part all right fair enough i'll buy that there are times when I'm going to be honest with you, um, art of this overall quality that we see in this issue, I think would have been perfectly acceptable in his Marvel days. But there are times when I think an editor was needed for oversight on some of these layouts. And, you know, I don't want to dwell on what Bill already mentioned, but that scene where the police car runs over the uh, homeless people in the alley, there needs to be. There's one more element on this page than what needs to be there, considering the size of the art. Something needed to go. And maybe Jim Salakrup from the Amazing Spider-Man days would have tapped Todd McFarlane on the shoulder and said, we need a correction on this page. This layout, it's it's just too busy. There's too much going on. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll, I'll, definitely, I'll definitely go with you on that, that he did need... He needed someone to crack the whip a little bit and kind of push him to exercise a little bit more discipline. This isn't a bad page. It's just not as powerful as it should be. There's something about this, about this page that just kind of throws off the entire balance. And I can't even tell you what it is. Well, also just that particular page, again, that should be a very, very powerful page. And yet like the, the, the dude that's jumping, you know, two thirds of the way down the page who's jumping towards the reader. He looks too cartoony. He looks like he's at a mad magazine and it kind of takes away from the powerfulness of the story to me or the image rather. 
Fair enough. So that'll do it for three Trent Trentus Magnus books. <laughs> yeah, Trentus like Magnus an, punches back to the bins. I think I think yeah, we're gonna call I think we're gonna call this one tri- Triple Magnus. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is kind of a sequel to my my uh, defunct podcast. So uh, yeah, hey, sure, go for it. Why not? No, 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 never say defunct. Just say hiatus. You never know when you when you might decide to come back. But in the meanwhile. I'm I'm happy that you've decided to come back on a uh, part-time basis with us and sit down and talk to us for a little while. And uh, this was enjoyable. And I want to thank you for taking the time to come and do it with us. And just for anybody listening, uh, be aware that this was the third time that we've attempted to do it because <laughs> we had internet problems and we had work problems and we finally got to do this. So we worked hard to get this episode to you. Yeah. So you guys be grateful, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, seriously. So, uh, thank you guys for inviting me. This was a real blast. Uh, this is uh, basically everything I uh, wanted to do when I first got into podcasting. So, you know, just hanging out and just talking about funny books, man. That's what it's all about. So thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Bill, we'll talk soon. And uh, everybody who's listening, uh, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> I just needed to cuddle and you fed me. <laughs> All I needed I mean, was a should... hug. <laughs>